Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I am Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written over three dozen cookbooks, including, well, the cookbook we're about to talk about. So we this show is going to be about our brand new cookbook. Sorry to be so self-congratulatory, but why not, right? We get to do this at least once. We don't hitch over the head too much with this, but... We want to talk about what it took to write this book. We've got a one-minute cooking tip. Bruce is interviewing Carolina Doherty, the author of Salt of the Earth Secrets and Stories from a Greek Kitchen. I have to tell you, this cookbook absolutely blew my mind when I saw it. I wanted to make every single recipe in it. It is a gorgeous cookbook, Salt of the Earth. I can't wait to hear that interview. And we're going to tell you what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. We have written, and in November, we'll be publishing the Look and Cook Air Fryer Bible. And we called it Look and Cook because every step of every recipe is photographed, 700-plus photos in the book. So you will know what it looks like when we say to bread the chicken breast. You will know what it looks like to skewer shrimp. You will know what it looks like to flip a sandwich inside of an air fryer. And you know what we did? On We made a couple decisions on this. It's really funny. We want, I want to talk about how this book got created. So it, we made a couple decisions. One was we had to limit, of course, because you know publishers can't publish volumes of recipes that every uh, recipe is photographed because it's just too expensive to publish the book, to print the book. So we had to limit to 125 and we chose 125 I mean that was actually a long negotiation and Bruce and I always sit down and we work out the table of contents or if you want to be really in the publishing know you call it the TOC we work out the TOC together and we figure out what recipes are going to be in the book that's basically the table of contents but this time and this is unusual for us there were about 30 recipes that Bruce tested that didn't make it into the book. And I don't mean that they failed in the testing. <laughs> I mean that they were tested and ready to go. But we had to kind of figure out how to shape the book so that there were 125 recipes, so that there were enough in each chapter. It was weird. We we never really come up against this in which we have a whole bandwidth of recipes left over at the end of testing. Well, yeah, if we're writing a book with 500 recipes, it's okay for me to have six recipes for breaded chicken cutlets, right? With different seasonings, different coatings, different liquids that hold the breadcrumbs on. Right. But when it's a look and cook and the technique is basically the same, we don't need more than one. Well, for example, one example is that we, you had tested and wrote out a recipe for char siu, the uh, Chinese uh, roast pork in an air fryer. And we eventually cut it because, and this was another thing that was interesting. We cut it because we couldn't make it make sense in six pictures. We had five to six pictures for each recipe. And the only way we could make that recipe make sense was more than six pictures. Mm. So we cut that recipe out of the book. It's really an intriguing set of problems. I know this is very writerly and self-involved, but this is the kind of things that we actually had to think about to write this book. Well, it's interesting. When you think about how we're going to tell the story of a recipe, they all have to, in a book like this, be the same length. So the stories have to be the same length, whether we're showing you how to do 
you know, a mac and cheese with bacon and fig jam, yep. or whether we're showing you how to do a stuffed chicken breast, because we have to be consistent with how many photos are on a page. And because each recipe was photographed, what we did is we decided that you didn't need to turn a page to complete a recipe, which is really important because the recipe falls on the left-hand side and all the pictures on the right-hand side, which means that that recipe couldn't go beyond the left-hand side of a page. Right. And then the re the photos are across that because, again, we didn't want you to have to turn the page and finish the recipe and then turn back to look at some photos, which made no sense. So yeah. we were trying desperately to figure out how to do this. And the other thing that we did, which is, I'm sorry, again, self-involved, uh, but how the book got created is we had to figure out how can we tell the story of this recipe without words. So we, <laughs> we made this deal that the photos had to stand on their own. Now, you wouldn't know how much of, a, of an ingredient to use, how many breadcrumbs to use, and whether it's a half a cup or a cup without reading the recipe. But still, you have to see it sitting there in the five or six pictures, and they themselves have to make a story on right. that side of the page. There are other books out there that show you step-by-step -step pictures, and they're really good. Like the Nom Nom Paleo people do it all the time. They do it excellently. They do a beautiful job of it. What they do, though, is show you so many pictures yeah. that it's almost like if you if you scan the page fast, I feel like you're watching a movie. Yes. Because <laughs> it's like that's so the, many pictures. That's the other thing we decided is that we looked a lot at the Nom Nom Paleo books, which are beautiful, and they're they do gorgeous. a beautiful job of them. But uh, we looked at those books, and the the number of recipes that had, let's say, 15 photos right. to them, we found those actually overwhelming. I said to Bruce, I, my, I can't focus on the page. I don't know where to look on this page mm -hmm. for pictures, so I want to be able to put all right. my pictures on the right-hand side and all my text on the left-hand side. And what we gained by that was also that we could blow the pictures up. Yep. So they're not small. They're not postage stamp size, right. so that they're really big, so you can really see what's going on. And we had a fabulous photographer, Eric Metzger, who shoots the last 13 of our books yep. came to the house and he shot them and they so are just gorgeous. All the shots in the book, all 705 of them are in our kitchen. Those are Bruce's hands. That's Bruce's waist. I don't think your face is in any of the pictures, but it's your, mm -hmm. your mid-drift. <laughs> oh, I love the idea that you're wearing a halter top on the camera. Um, no, but I did have a cut on a finger and I kept having you to did. put concealer. You I did. foundation on my cut you just did. constantly all week. And so we had three different week-long photo shoots to create this many pictures. And it was really intense. We get along really well with this photographer. But I have to say that all three of us had to admit at the end of the last shoot that our tempers had frayed <laughs> by the end of the last shoot, that we were all kind of a little bitey because we were working so intensely, so quickly, and for so many days together. I mean, you know, you, you get to be really good friends, and then all of a sudden you start saying things that you really wouldn't say to a really good friend because suddenly it's like you're three of us are married or something. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying these awful things, and you're having to back up and say, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bite at you because you didn't take the shot fast enough. you got to take that one faster because we're trying to get this in the shot. So it was all a huge negotiation, and laying it out was another problem because then when the book got to copy edit, we have a really great copy editor, somebody who I just absolutely insist copy edits our books. I'm so pleased that I get to insist this. And, of course, she then looked at at the photographs and at the text and had to make sure that they jived. And several times she would say, mm, you know, I, I don't know, I'd have written half 
inch slices of celery, and she's like, picture does not show half inch slices of celery. Picture, right, blame picture me. shows blame, one inch slices of celery. Blame the food stylist. That's I, fine. Uh, well, it was a thing, and <laughs> I so know. then I, I had to then re-jigger that recipe, and I had to go back up to Bruce and say, is it okay that we were making these celery slices bigger or smaller than we originally said in the original testing, and yada, yada. I mean, all of that was all the negotiation that went into this book. It was quite laborious it to was. create it. And I said this book goes on sale in November, so why are we talking about it now? Because we have just finished all the editorial process on it, it's so it all is... to bed. It, we are so happy about that, and because it is available for pre order and pre-orders are really important. You've probably seen a lot of authors on social media, both for novels, for memoirs, and for cookbooks, talking about, hey, pre-order, pre-order. It's really important. It tells the publisher how many to print up front so they don't run out, and it really just helps everybody know what's going on. So if you're considering buying a book, ours or anyone else's that's coming out, consider pre-ordering because it's really helpful. So the Look and Cook Air Fryer Bible will be out in November. And if you look down at the show notes to this podcast, there is a link to buy it in the U.S. Sorry, I can't put an international link there. I can't make a link suitable for all countries, but it is suitable for the U.S. And if you're in another country and listening to this podcast and you would like a copy of the book, you can click through and it will then divert you to your country's Amazon site. Sorry, it's all through the great Satan Amazon, and it will it will divert you there. But you can find that link in the show notes on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Oh, that sounded bad, didn't it? On, on, on. Well, anyway, okay. And you're the writer. <laughs> and I'm the writer. Before we get to the next segment of our show, let me say that it would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you can rate it, if you can write a review, even just a nice podcast down there. It really does wonders for us. Thank you for doing that. It helps in the analytics. It helps in the algorithms. We are unsupported and choose to be that way. So our only support is through you. So thank you very much for supporting the podcast and subscribing to it so you don't miss an episode. Up next, as is traditional, our one-minute cooking tip. When you are adding ground dried spices to a cake batter, or a quick bread batter, like you're adding cinnamon or cloves or ground ginger to a banana bread or to a cake, don't add them with the dry ingredients. Wow, this is so fascinating. Put them in the mixer when you're creaming your butter or shortening and sugar. You just went against every recipe ever written. Okay. Okay, see, why? Because, one, they'll get distributed evenly, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that the fat, the butter or the shortening or the oil will bring out the flavor of that ground spice. And it, yep. most of these spices yep. are fat-soluble. Most of them are only fat-soluble. And so the fat brings them out, draws out the flavor, when we and say, makes it more intense. When we say the spices are fat-soluble, what we mean is the flavonids in the spices, not the spices themselves. Yeah. And the flavonids are actually soluble in fat. Because they're flavor oils. Even in that cinnamon, right. there's a flavor oil. Even in that ground ginger, there's a flavor oil. And that blends with the fat, it blends with the shortening, it blends with your oil, and you will have a much more intensely flavored cake or quick bread. Before we get to the interview on this podcast, we need to tell you that we do have a newsletter. It is also called Cooking with Bruce and Mark. You can find it on our website, 
Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Weren't we smart? We did all that together. Cookingwithbruceandmark.com. You can find it on the website. Drop down there. There's a sign-up form on the splash page. If you just scroll down, I just will tell you up front, I cannot see that you have subscribed, and I cannot capture your email. I set it up as a locked private system, so your email can never be distributed. And you can unsubscribe from our newsletter at any point. It comes out, mm, I don't know, two times a month maybe along in there. When I get the gumption, usually on Mondays it comes out. I don't want to overwhelm people with an email a week. I find that just really irritating from the newsletters I sign up for. So a couple times a month I send out a newsletter. Sometimes it's about food and cooking. Sometimes it's about our life here in rural New England. It's about our dogs, our collies. It's about gardening. Oh, my gosh. It's about all kinds of things. It's about Bruce's knitting books. Yes, Bruce has published knitting books and teaches knitting classes, where to find his patterns. So all of that comes out in the newsletter. Sign up there on our website, BruceandMark.com. Okay, up next, Bruce's interview with Carolina Doherty. She's the author of Salt of the Earth, Secrets and Stories from a Greek Kitchen. Today, we are talking with Carolina Doherty. She is a chef and food writer specializing in foods of Greece. She's the culinary producer of the TV series My Greek Table, and she's the author of the amazing new book, Salt of the Earth, Secrets and Stories from a Greek Kitchen. Welcome, Carolina. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So you grew up in Greece and you've been cooking for most of your life. So can you describe Greek cuisine for someone totally unfamiliar with the country and its food? I mean, it, it really relies on the, on, the, on the fresh produce and what's in season. And, you know, Greece is blessed with amazing vegetable and fruit mm-hmm. and other produce. So the food is really, really fresh and very herbal and lemony. And olive oil is a very, very, very big, uh, you know, trade of it. Your book is divided up into food categories that truly represent Greek flavors. So let's start as you do in the book. Let's start with olive oil. And how important is it to the Greek culture and cuisine? Very. (laughs) The cuisine would not exist without it. (laughs) So it's needed in most of the recipes. Um, I mean, it's a Mediterranean uh, cuisine so you know olive oil is a fundamental ingredient and um, it's not only about olive oil you know it's the olive as a symbol which is embedded in the culture in many many ways which I explain in the book from the ancient times you know adopted into the Christian religion later so we see throughout history that um, there are some major ingredients olive olive the olive tree is one of them or, or the vine, or the, the, the chapters that I have separated, you know, I have included in mm-hmm. the book, which really define uh, the cuisine in so many ways, and there are so many different ways to use them. Is there something about the olives and the olive oil from Greece that's different from other countries? Uh, of course, I'm Greek, and I think Greek olive oil is amazing. <laughs> Why is Greek olive oil amazing? It's, first of all, you know, I mean, most of the production of the olive oil of the country if I'm not mistaken, around 80% of the production is classified as extra virgin. So in fact, it's difficult to find bad quality olive oil. Mm. I regard olive oil like wine. You know, there are different varieties of olives that produce different qualities of olive oil with different flavors and different aromas. You know, the only the only fundamental difference is that you cannot age it. 
You cannot mm -hmm. age olive oil. You have to consume it fresh so that you get all the nutrients. Early in the book, you offer up a very simple but sublime recipe for olives and onions. And it's photographed and shown with some fried potatoes, and it just looks like heaven. Tell me about this dish. I'm so glad you like it. You know, when I was deciding on which recipes I'm going to choose for each chapter, it was very diff difficult because, you know, I had a limited number of recipes I could I could include. And this was one of my favorites. I thought, oh, my God, they're going to think I'm crazy, <laughs> you know, using olives in the place of meat, in a way, mm -hmm. because this was its purpose. This is a poor man's dish which was prepared during times of war uh, when other ingredients were not easily accessible or available at all so you know it's based on two products that greeks have always had access to olives and onions you make it i mean first you cook the onions to soften them it's like a quick stew in a way you just add the olives towards the end because you don't want to overcook them because they will melt and you need to rinse the olives very well, of course, before you start using them in, in such way so that salt is gone, it's not so intense. For me, it reminds me of a very simple beef stew mm -hmm. with tomatoes. So instead of the beef, you've got the uh, olives, you know, as a main star. And you have a chapter in your book about grains. And I think many people might find it surprising that whole grains play such an important role in Greek cuisine. So what grains are the most common? And if you had to pick one grain dish that represents the flavors of Greece, what would that be? In my book, I'm presenting the Greek cuisine historically, you know, and I explain how things maybe have changed. So whole grains were historically used a lot, primarily a barley in the ancient times. Uh, of course, this was uh, mostly, you know, I mean, nowadays you see wheat as the main ingredient. And of course, wheat is as well very symbolic. And it has been symbolic since the ancient times as well. But, you know, I mean, whole grains were used more in the past. You know, as, as far as the whole wheat berries are, are concerned or, uh, you know, whole barley berries. But there are certain dishes like for instance koliva which is a recipe in my cookbook which is made with wheat berries it's mm -hmm. an ancient recipe as i describe uh, connected to a specific celebration of the ancient uh, of ancient athens and and uh, this was adopted later by the church and it's still served uh, at funerals in fact <laughs> it's wheat berries mixed with uh, chopped nuts seeds and uh, pomegranate seeds mm. Uh, some chopped parsley. This was called panspermia. Pan means everything in Greek and sperma, sperm, you know, seeds. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very symbolic thing and everything means something in there. So, I mean, apart from its symbolic, symbolic meaning, which I love, this is fantastic for breakfast with yogurts. <laughs> mm, yum. It's slightly sweet, but not very sweet. As far as the as the dish that represents Greece, I think because you know, at some at some point in history, rice entered and it became a big part of the of the of the cuisine, especially after the 1950s. So 
a lot of the wheat recipes or cracked wheat recipes were replaced uh, with rice. So I, I think a dish that fully represents the flavors of summer in Greece is mm -hmm. a st rice stuffed uh, baked vegetables. I always m make a big tray and I mix tomatoes and peppers and eggplants and zucchinis and zucchini flowers and grape leaves and I stuff everything and I add potatoes and I bake. In the U.S., we use honey as a sweetener or mild flavoring, but in Greece... Honey is often a main ingredient. I see that in the recipes in your book. So tell me about your favorite honey dishes, both sweet and savory. Honey has olive oil in the wine. It comes from many different plants or trees, and it can be extremely different. Like it can be creamy, it can be runny, it can be bitter, it can be sweet. So it depends what honey I use for what. So one of my favorite things is a very classic uh, thing. It's like yogurt with thyme honey. Thyme because it's important because Greek thyme honey is very aromatic. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's got the right consistency to be served on top of yogurt. And I also love festive recipes like the wild boar with queens mm -hmm. and honey, which I love cooking it on Christmas. And um, I also love desserts such as... Um, Dipless. These are egg-based pancakes that are rolled as they are fried mm -hmm. and they are crispy. Mm -hmm. And then you dip them in honey and you sprinkle them with walnut. There is a large chapter in your book dedicated to grapes. Mm -hmm. um, you use the entire plant, the vine. How is the entire plant used? This is a very important part of what I'm trying to show in this book. You know that old cuisines are very wise because they are traditionally sustainable and traditionally resourceful. So, you know, now it's a very, you know, it's a very trendy thing at the moment in cooking. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would, you know, I like to show that this, you know, it used to be like that and we kind of ruined it. And now we are like going back to it because mm -hmm. <laughs> we've wasted too much. <laughs> so the vine is an amazing example for that because you literally do not waste a thing so you use of course the grapes not only in uh, food uh, or by drying them to make raisins but also you know in wine and other spirits vinegar balsamic vinegar grape molasses which comes from grape must so i explain all of these parts of, of you know all of these byproducts and uh, and then we've got the leaves, the actual plant. We use the leaves. We use the, the tips, which are pickled. And then mm -hmm. we also cook with the tips when they're fresh. They just have a very short season. Mm -hmm. um, we use the, the twigs to roast meat on them. So a lot of the Easter recipes, when the twigs are young, because you need to use them when they, they are young, you know, are used in a way as a grill so that the meat is placed on top of them. And then this is not only working as a grill so that the meat cooks well, but it also brings a, a special kind of aroma. If somebody picks up your book and they want to make a dinner and they've never made Greek food before, what are two or three dishes they should make which would really represent the most authentic foods of Greece, which they could present to their friends and family? My number one advice is to follow the season. Make sure that whatever you use comes you know like is in season and it's you know just go get the best ingredients you can get because 
the flavor if if you're using vegetables they're very important in in every recipe they are the star of the recipe mm-hmm. use a good olive oil use a good wine to cook so um, this is my number one um advice and then my second advice is to whoever has not tried <laughs> the classic greek avgo lemono sauce which is egg and lemon sauce please <laughs> choose one of the recipes <laughs> because it's used in many ways it can be used in a soup it can be used as a sauce over a stew it can be used in several different ways but every way is very unique in my opinion so unless someone is vegan and cannot try it, I, I would highly recommend. And then for the people that are vegan, try the dishes with uh, with the giant beans or with mm. the chickpeas, which are very, very simple dishes and very tasty. Carolina Doherty, your book is beautiful. Salt of the Earth, Secrets and Stories from a Greek Kitchen. Great good luck with the book. And thank you for spending some time talking about Greek food with me this morning. Thank you very much. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, that book just kind of blew me away when it it's came out. It's beautiful. It's such a gorgeous book. I can't wait to start cooking my way through it. Oh. And I love talking to her. She, she spoke to me from her home in Athens. And I just love that we could do that. Yeah, it's it's, just... it's such a great thing in the modern world. Bruce, by the way, if you don't know, and I'm just going to tell you, Bruce does all of these podcast interviews via Zoom. So he's actually looking at the author and they're mm-hmm. looking at him. We don't publish those because that involves further releases of image <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And we're not interested in doing all of that. So we don't actually capture and publish the video interviews. And they are also, <laughs> Bruce is also an editor and he edits the podcasts quite a bit the interviews get cut down quite a bit so instead of a 40 minute interview you end up with a 17 minute interview on the podcast so again bruce does it all by zoom which is all kind of cool before we get to the last segment of this podcast let's just say thanks for being with us on this journey and now what's making us happy in food this week What's making me happy in food this week is summer pudding. Bruce made a summer pudding to take to a friend's house for dessert a couple weeks ago. And if you don't know about summer pudding, you need to learn about summer pudding. (laughs) There's a great recipe in our book, The Ultimate Cookbook. But still, nonetheless, you can find all kinds of recipes online for summer pudding. It's basically, if you like bread and jam, you'll love a summer pudding. explain it. Well, you take a bunch of berries and you boil them down with sugar until you get a sort of jam-like consistency. It doesn't have to be crazy sort of jam-like consistency, and then you layer that in a bowl with crustless white bread, layers of bread and jam and bread and jam. Then you cover it, you weight it down, put a can on top, plate and a can on top of it or something like that, put it in the fridge. The pectin in the berries helps it set up. The next day, you pull it out of that, you turn the bowl upside down and unmold it, pull it out of the bowl upside down onto a platter, and there it is. It's like a big round cake full of bread and jam. <laughs> you eat it with enough whipped cream and I can guarantee you get a stomach ache, but it is delicious. <laughs> Just absolutely crazy. And we always have at least one summer pudding a summer. Our friend who Bruce took it to is uh, English, and I have to tell you that when she took the first bite, her eyes rolled back in her head. She she was like, oh my gosh, what my mom used to make. So Tasted like home. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so what's making you have you food this week? Cold pizza pilsner from Black 
Hog Brewing Company. It's a Connecticut brewer, and they make this Pilsner that is so crisp and delicious, and they say it goes great with leftover cold pizza. Now, the only problem is I like leftover cold pizza for breakfast, and I'm still not at the point where I'm doing a Pilsner breakfast. Don't be that old that you drink a beer for breakfast. And it's a Czech-style Pilsner. It's very bright. It's light. Mm. It's crisp. Mm. It's dry. It Mm. is one of my favorite new summer beers, Mm. cold pizza Pilsner. Well, and, you know, let's take this moment to say that there have been a million microbreweries spring up in the last 10 years. So many that, in case you don't know, most banks will no longer write business loans for microbreweries because the market is so flooded. So now is your chance to support your local microbrewery or cidery. Make it a point, if you are into these things, to go visit them, pick up a six-pack, or drop in and have a beer at the bar or a cider at the bar. That is a great way to support these people because there are so many now that, in fact, there's a lot of competition. So support your local one, and that will do well. That's our podcast for this week. Thank you for being on the journey with us. Thanks for tuning in. We know that there is a vast landscape of podcasts out there, and it is absolutely fantastic that you've chosen to be part of our landscape. And please go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and share with us what's making you happy in food this week. We would like to find out what's going on in your life with food, and we look forward to sharing another episode with you of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.